0: For the rest of this month, this month being September 2020, you can take out a subscription to The Athletic for the frankly ridiculous price of just £1 a month. That's unrivaled football writing and analysis from the very best people in the business, a brand spanking new breaking news service and ad-free versions of each Athletic podcast all for just £1 a month. Go to theathletic.com slash totally
1: to get started. Totally Football Show today, round two of the Premier League season. Zaha scores in Manchester, nothing to do with the manager's daughter, while at Saints it's a son who's putting it about in a massive win for Spurs. We round up all the stories in a busy weekend for goals, plus we'll check in on Pirlo. How'd that debut go? We get a heads up from James Horncastle. It's the Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. Hello, listener. What a pleasure to have you with us. It is Monday, the 21st of September. Hope you're well. And here to talk us through the round two action in the Premier League, we have author and football writer for the I, Daniel Story. Hi, James. Hello, Daniel. Shy, retiring Liverpool observer Sasha Gurionov is with us. Hello, James. Hello, Sasha. And a man who went from saints to devils over the summer, Carl Anker.
2: Hello, James.
1: Hey, Carl. Mm, you just come back for your, your first professional trip to Old Trafford. Woof.
2: Yeah, very mm. strange being sat in the Theatre of Dreams. That was mostly empty.
1: Dreams, yes. Big scoring weekend, of course. Uh, I make it 39 in eight matches so far in round two, which is 4.875 per game. Almost five goals a game. That's incredible. And if we get a meagre five goals across the two fixtures on Monday... That'll make this the record goal-scoring weekend ever in the Premier League, at least since they went to 20 games. What's behind it? That's the big buzz question. <laughs> What's behind it, Daniel Storey?
3: Uh, a combination, I suppose, of bad defending in brackets general. Um, I think teams are playing with high lines, Southampton are an obvious example, um, and kind of getting caught. But I do also think that there's a, a general kind of shortened pre-season argument for it in that, Managers seem pretty slow to change things that aren't working. You know, we don't have the drink space anymore and that certainly is a, a, mm. a, a, was an occasion in which they intervened. But yeah, it just feels like the teams that start to play badly aren't really addressing that. Um, and, and you know, maybe we should look at the flip side and say that there's some very, very good forwards in the Premier League as well. So it's not necessarily just bad defending.
1: That's very true. Uh, you were pointing out earlier that we've now had as many hat-tricks in 2020-21 as we did in the whole of the 2006-2007 seasons. Crouch, Drogba and Rooney, the only three players to get hat-tricks in the whole of that campaign, we've already had Salah, Calvert-Lewin and Son. Madness. Well, the scores, and they are crazy. It began Saturday lunchtime with Everton's 5-2 victory over West Brom. Also on Saturday, Arsenal saw off West Ham by a comparatively meagre two goals to one. Leeds had another 4-3, this time they were on the right end of it. At home to Fulham. And Palace went to Old Trafford. Palace and won 3-1. On Sunday, Spurs ruled back from last week's disappointment and from going a goal down in this one uh, with a 5-2 win over Saints. Brighton won 3-0 at Newcastle. Manny had Kepa for breakfast as Liverpool did Chelsea a 2-0. And Leicester went top of the league for the first time since they won it with their 4-2 win over Burnley. Still to come on Monday, Wolves will be up against Man City and Aston Villa will take on Sheffield United. But we're going to begin at Stamford Bridge.
0: You're listening to the Totally Football Show, sponsored by Paddy Power and part of the Athletic Podcast Network. given by Kepa, Balaga, another catastrophe for him. And Sadio Mane has his second. it's totally gift-wracked by the goalkeeper.
1: Liverpool 2-0 winners at Chelsea on Sunday yeah, afternoon. Daniel, you've been doing winners and losers for Football 365. Hope you kept a couple of places free for this one.
3: Yeah, I mean, I feel for for Kepper in that, you know, any professional in any industry, particularly one under the pretty bright glare of the spotlight, suffering such a devastating loss of form, or not even really a loss of form, just never really shown any form. Uh, it's not pleasant for him, and he will be going through it as everyone piles on the, 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 the criticism but he, he, he the performances justify it because every week now there's a catastrophic error which ultimately helps decide Chelsea's results and um, I'm surprised that Lampard has kept faith with him at the beginning of this season I thought he'd probably play Caballero particularly given that there was clearly going to be a new goalkeeper signed and Edouard Mendy will be coming in this week so it just felt like playing him was almost no win in that you were only ever going to drop him after two or three games anyway. But that aside, he should still have done better with you know with the opportunity he was given this season and last. And it was a another, as I say, another catastrophic error for for Mane's second goal.
4: Mm. On Kepa, I mean, it's a gradual deterioration. Um, it's you could see in the first half even today. Um, there was a couple of times that but his own defenders wouldn't pass the ball back to him, as it turned out, with good reason. Uh, I actually think he probably has a good part to play in the sending off as well, because there is clearly a mistrust between the defenders and the goalkeeper, who comes when and how. All right, the, the Chelsea defence was switched off and not aware to the counter-attack or, in fact, where Mane was, but na- neither was Kepa, and Kepa can actually see the pitch in front of him. And I think when it comes to... At the 2-0, the uh, you know the blocked uh, clearance, or um, well, actually the, the blocked pass, Klopp said after the game that one of the things we're going to do is chase the goalkeeper the whole game. And it's really nice to see it come off because so when Shreves I think, asked him, is like, you know, did you enjoy the fact that Mane kept going? But even Manny was trying to explain, I didn't keep going because I was angry. We knew exactly how to close down the passes from the goalkeeper. So they targeted him. They got the reward. And at the moment, yeah, he's uh, the thing is, at that stage of the game as well, you're down to 10-0, 1-0, men, one 0 2 0 just kills the whole thing. And that's, mm. that's what he does to his team at the moment. Well, if Kepa's in the losers column, is Sadio
1: Manny among the winners? It was he who brought the red card after he, him latching onto that wonderful uh, long pass from Jordan Henderson. So Andreas Christensen executes some pretty hands on last <laughs> ditch defending bear hug um, indeed and and then of course he he, he pops up with a, with a couple of goals
3: he is obviously a winner this weekend in that he scored liverpool's two goals but i think generally the the intensity of that front three over the first two games will really impress jürgen klopp because we we talk about complacency and i think um there's two ways that we generally see complacency one is a sort of general lethargy across the team which i think we would be a surprise under a Klopp team. Uh, I know there was a a drop off at Dortmund but in slightly different circumstances without a um you know constantly fighting from behind in terms of Bayern Munich's dominance but the other way is a kind of inexactness in the final third and actually over the first you know the first two weekends of the season they have been pretty lethal. You know their defending wasn't brilliant against Leeds it didn't have to be brilliant against Chelsea for for most of it but the way that that front three seems to have clicked straight back into gear after a short break, and almost seem intent on outscoring each other, it almost looks like a personal duel of you know, I'm going to be the first to ten goals, and then I'm going to be the first to fifteen and twenty, and we're going to get Roberto Firmino to score at Anfield in the league. And there just seems to be that really healthy competition between them, and now with Yoga Jota coming in, healthy competition for places as well.
4: And let's also give some more, some more credit to Firmino as well, because he's very cute movement before yeah, he sets up Mani. And also, when the second goal sc- comes, he actually tells Mani, go points him to where he should be closing down the pass, and that's exactly where the pass goes. I also think a big winner today is Fabinho. Uh, I mean, I know eye- eyebrows were raised, but Fabinho has actually played that centre back one on one with Werner. With he did very well a couple of times. So I think there's lots of encouraging uh, things um, for Liverpool throughout all the lines, and that's even before we mention Thiago.
1: Let's mention Thiago then. Go on then, Sasha.
4: Well, Thiago did lots of passing. Um, but I, I thought it was a good game for him to come in, and, again, as Klopp said after the game, because when... when Liverpool had a stranglehold on the game, I thought, anyway. Uh, Chelsea were were completely penned back, to be honest. And then you go a man up, very gentle introduction, an introduction where he could even do a midfield, midfield this uh, sort of challenge for the penalty, where he kind of just comes running back in the box, guys, I'm going to help. Oh, yeah, I helped you really. And uh, so I I thought it was a gentle introduction for him, given the sort of high-level game this is, so a bit more confidence for him. And yeah, pass, 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 pass. Perhaps the thing at Liverpool midfield has been missing on the club. 75
1: successful passes. That's the most ever in the Premier League by a player who's only played uh, a maximum of 45 minutes, which, you know, he did. But as you say, it was a slightly a gentle fixture for him to come into, uh, Chelsea, a man down from Christensen's uh, red card. Uh, Ankur1911 says, uh, beyond all of that, should questions be asked of Frank Lampard? His tactical choices have baffled to say the least, says Ankur, buy a Ferrari and drive like a Corolla.
2: Yeah, Frank Lampard has definitely been one of a slightly tactical neve formats, especially in the game against Brighton. I think he kind of got it better on on the Sunday. There, there was definitely a game plan, and it you know the you know, counter attack, suck him up, and then spin out to O'Van on a counter attack is not the most complicated of ideas, but it certainly looked as if it was okay for the first forty minutes. I think one of the big problems with Chelsea that has been a prolonged problem with Chelsea is that no matter what Frank Lampard does he has centre-backs for varying you know pluses and minuses that are all very very quiet Uh, Sasha has just talked about how Kepa was you know sort of played into that mistake from Christensen that involved the red card that doesn't happen if you have a centre-back that talks a lot that doesn't happen if you have a centre-back that shouts man on left right and does the basic stuff which again goes back to just sort of Chelsea never properly replaced Gary Cahill. And isn't that a very strange statement to say? A lot is going to be asked of Thiago Silva, not just to play in the high line and hope in his, I I don't want to say advanced age, 35 plus years, he's got the legs for it. But also, can he just constantly yell at a back four that is very, very quiet? Christensen is very quiet. Zuma is very, very quiet. Tomori, first game he's played since February, a bit better. But again, a young colt comparatively and is also quite a a quiet centre-back. I don't know how you coach that.
4: Again, perhaps the difficulty is they're all really nice lads. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, when, whenever I've interviewed them after the games, they're they're all really calm, you're really composed ten minutes after they've been been running around. And I'm, I'm some, like, I was speaking to Christensen last year. and I was like, he looked like a lost student uh, who kind of wandered into this uh, post-match interview area. And I just think, yeah, there isn't just doesn't seem to be enough oomph around that those centre backs and, and keeper as well. Um, someone to actually take what's going on and tell people what to do, and they take 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 the defensive part of the game by the scruff of the neck. So maybe this is where Thiago comes in. But he he does he. I mean, does he have the language to actually order these these guys about? Like I, they would know his reputation, but. I think this is a situation where perhaps he has to do a bit more micromanagement.
1: Is there a danger of piling too much criticism on Chelsea for this game? What did you make of the first 45 minutes while it was still 11 v 11? I
3: mean, as Carl says, they had a a game plan, which was to kind of soak up Liverpool's pressure and use that counter-attack. Almost those direct passes that we saw Calvin Phillips do for Leeds last weekend, the kind of quarterback passes from either holding midfielder or central defender to a wide forward and it was Timo Werner in most of the most of the time. I, I'm not completely enamored with this idea of Chelsea going long which they seem to have done against Brighton and against Liverpool when you know you've just created one of the most arguably one of the most fluid front lines in in Europe and now you're starting to hit it long to players who are more comfortable with ball at feet. I don't really get that, but maybe Liverpool is a hard game to to judge that on. The the problem with playing that kind of reactive Football. that reactive plan is that as soon as something goes wrong and you don't have anything to, you know, you don't have a second gear or you don't have any resilience to respond, it leaves, not in this case, but it generally leaves supporters leaving the ground thinking, well, we didn't even really try there. We've just kind of lost without giving it a go. We've not laid a glove on the opponent. And that's why sometimes managers prefer this kind of blood and thunder football, because at least people feel like, hang on, at least we gave it a go. At least we tried to throw a few punches rather than just sitting back, sitting back and eventually kind of losing on points.
1: Mm. A quick word on Havertz. While Werner looked uh, lively, Havertz not so much. If this was the ideal fixture for Thiago to make his debut in Thiago Alcantara, this would have been a very difficult kind of couple of games for Car Havertz to try and find his feet in, in Frank's side.
2: Yeah, and I think he was operating up wide, against Brighton which didn't quite make sense especially when you look to the players Frank Lampard was sort of using as three eights or number 10s and then now to work as a number 10 in a game where you're trying to play quite direct doesn't quite make sense. Frank Lampard has an embarrassment of riches and he has you know what we like to call the nice headache but it, it's, it's going to take a while. I think this season's going to be quite fun because you've got the international tournament hangover that we often like to say after a World Cup without having the international tournament and the managers that are responding to this are the managers that are going "Hang on, let's take this back to basics." So as Daniel just said, you know, you're seeing managers not really have a plan B, and it all just looks a bit flat. And I think that will extend to a number of teams. We saw this w- weekend of their preferred plan A was not possible due to um, reasons regarding fatigue, fitness, or personnel issues, uh, and then realizing they don't have a plan A because they're so con- you know concerned with this in air quotes philosophy.
4: Does he have a while, though? Because, I mean, he was speaking after the game again that he needs to have time. But given the pressures at Chelsea and the fact that he's expected to achieve more than season and the fact they're playing every three to four days, is he actually going to have enough time to coach this team into something? Um, because it's, you know, there's a lot of travel. Uh, there's a lot of coming back. There's a lot of recovery. And, you know, in the past, you know, when, when coaches speak about times like this, they say, look, it's don't really have time to recover. Can't do much coaching. He has half a dozen new players and a change a style he's trying to change. Is he actually going to get the chance to do that without this descending into a complete mess?
1: Yeah, we did suggest before the season started that the more settled sides might, might be the ones that had less of a disadvantage from the incredible succession of games that uh, teams are currently facing. That said, a big squad uh, is going to be crucial, I imagine, which is why Dugo Jota's arrival at Liverpool
4: has got you beaming, eh, Sasha? So on Wednesday, I thought things looked quite bleak. I looked at Liverpool's accounts. I didn't think they had that, actually that much money. And it was quite down. And then it comes on Friday. And um, they pay £5 million up front for uh, uh, Thiago Alcantara. They pay £4 million up front, offset by Hoover, and, uh, for Diogo Jota, who can now play anywhere across the front three. And, uh, yeah, it's actually quite exciting because I think within the space of of a couple of days, the kind of picture and outlook for Liverpool's season perhaps has changed. Maybe there, there, there will be um, a way that... Uh, for example, Alden could stay. Uh, perhaps they will sell a couple more peripheral uh, members of the squad. But, you know, given that they've got nine million for Hoover, I think that's very good going to f- fund their other purchases. But I think the, the negotiation process by which Liverpool got these two players this week certainly is a, is a massive, massive win. And I'm really, really impressed with how uh, they actually managed, managed to do it. Of course, they didn't invent the concept of payment by instalments. But in a situation where they're quite cash poor, to drive quite such a high bargain, to agree these terms, for example, they couldn't do this for Ven. Uh, I think they've done really really well Um, and now also in terms of age I was one perhaps I'm being a little bit too neurotic because I look at uh, Thiago and okay he's the best player in the Champions League final and I'm thinking oh he's 29 give it a couple of years they're all going to be in the 30s and fall off a cliff whereas you see the other teams you know Everton have uh, you know James and Allen they're both 29 uh, Bale's 31, Aubameyang's 31, signed a new contract, and all these other guys are excited. And I'm thinking, oh, what about the age profile of Liverpool? So this is, this is where Diogo Jota is fantastic because he's 23. He is perfect.
1: Well, from Liverpool's triumph to a very different story for their uh, rivals in Manchester, Crystal Palace's win at Old Trafford next. This season, the Premier League's going to be a little bit different. But at Paddy Power, we're trying to embrace the new normal by looking at the upside. Avoid unnecessary journeys. That's Fulham's trip to Anfield off. Fake crowd noise. The Emirates has never sounded so good. Self-isolate. Well, some midfielders do that very effectively. Avoid European travel. Shouldn't be a problem for Everton fans. When you think about it, not that much has changed, really. New normal, same old football. Paddy power. 18+. On Apple Podcasts,
0: Spotify, Smart Speaker and now ad-free on The Athletic, this is The Totally Football Show with James
5: Richardson.
1: Saturday evening, Man United 1, Crystal Palace 3. Yep, Palace not just winning but scoring three goals. That's the first time they've scored more than twice in 40 Premier League matches.
3: Yeah, and I I thought one of the the kind of low-key Uh, tactical master strokes of the weekend was was Roy Hodgson giving Wilfred Zahar the captain's armband Um, it's not been an easy summer for Wilfred Zahar, and he's made it very clear he would like to leave He, he turns 28 in November and I think he sees his big chance of another of a second big move a kind of big move redemption story fritting her away and that can be very frustrating for a player and some players in that scenario would sulk or kick up a fuss or trying to engineer a move or vehemently than he has. He said he wants to leave, but Palace have been, you know, Palace have been very honest with him and said, unless anyone pays the fee and we don't think they will, then you're not going anywhere. But his response has been to, to lead Palace over the, the the first two games of the season and lead a Palace side without Abourechiese starting, without Mishibachuai starting, and they will take responsibility off Zahara, and that is crucial for him because he will only become one of the best attacking midfielders again in the Premier League if he doesn't have two or three markers on him every week. And um, yeah, well done for Roy Hodson for making captain. Well done to him for embracing that and and well done for him for for performing brilliantly at you know at the ground that his career looked to have sort of gone off the rails at because um, yeah it would have been very easy, as I say, for him to kick up a fuss and sulk this summer and it doesn't sound like he's done any of that.
1: Two goals in this game following up the, the goal he scored last weekend against Southampton. Uh, Andros Townsend with the other goal here for Palace. That penalty though, uh, first of all to give it, then the fact that it was retaken with a different penalty taker the second time. Uh, Wakefield Neal says, how was Zahar allowed to Retake the penalty. Uh, this must be in the rules, but it seems wrong. W- what did you think of the handball decision, anyway, Carl?
2: It's the rule. Uh, it's the letter of the law now. If you hit, if it is um, it though, I, I was I was giggling deliriously over that uh, three minute period. It was very much. Uh, if, if if that's the handball law, then one has to enforce it. Uh, and Behe was off his line, so therefore you have to ask for a retake. I must admit I was not aware that you could change the penalty taker on a retake, but uh in, in my sort of frantic typing afterwards I found out that this this has happened and this has mm-hmm. happened in cases of encroachment before as well. So uh yes, a very, very silly five minutes, but I I'm reluctant to say that's why Crystal Palace beat Manchester United. They were just they were very good. They they played in a very good 4-4-2. Uh, they overloaded the left side and made most of the weaknesses in Daniel James and Timmy for Mensa on the right-hand side. Uh, and they left Manchester United with not much to do in terms of attacking play other than having pot shots from afar.
1: Mm. 75% possession United
2: have. Sterile possession. It was really sterile possession. I think uh, Manchester United, and I think the way Solskjaer wants United to play, is a he wants them to play this very, again, this sort of very modern style of football where you, you press... And you have two attacking fullbacks getting forward, but he doesn't quite have the personnel for that. Uh, I was talking to Duncan Alexander about how to best describe United's play, and he said uh, they're a bit like the demo version of FIFA. If Liverpool and Manchester City are playing in 2020, United are playing roughly in 2018, in that they've got some very, very good, very, very intelligent football players that are, when they're confident, playing out their skin. But when they're not, they don't really know what they're doing. There can be a mess in team shape. Uh, and they are over-reliant on two or three key team members. Um, when you saw that lineup, and there was no one Bissaka to secure the right wing and there was no Nemanja Matic to protect uh, a centre-back pairing that really should not be playing in a high line, alarm bells ring for Manchester United fans. And Solskjaer couldn't really adapt.
4: And I, th- I think th- this is one, th- one problem I have with the whole Koukha around VAR. They were exposed like that two or three times before it's something like that was coming and also the this in-game learning is absent and i think also the preparation seems to be somewhat wanting because the first goal was the mirror image of the goal that palace scored last week they know that the palace like like to do this and also in terms of how they were playing they came up against this wall in the center of the park and in watching the game you could just see there's just a mass of palace players and they just had absolutely no imagination about how to try to go around it even tried, try to get it wide and try to get to, to create some space, they couldn't even do that
2: Michael Cox at the start of last season wrote a piece for the Athletic arguing that the top six sides are best defined by the people that play in the number six the sort of deep lying midfielder and Manchester United have Fred, Scott McTominay, and Emmanuel Matic which is a, like a very bad game of rock paper scissors and none of those three players can truly stamp their their will upon a game in the way that Manchester United want to do consistently When so much of Manchester United's defensive game plan is Aaron Wan-Bissaka is one of the best defenders 1v1 in the league and he will shut down the right-hand side. So therefore, our centre-backs can play forward. To play with the same high line without Wan-Bissaka is very silly. Uh, When you don't have Wan-Bissaka to shut down the right-hand side and you don't have Nemanja Matic to drop deep, Victor Lindelof becomes a liability. So to persist with two very slow centre-backs... Uh, and try and play with that high line when you don't have the two players that protect that high line is is
1: naive at best. Mm. Gary Neville says, you can talk about Sancho, which we haven't done, but uh, take your point. Uh, but United will never win the league with that defensive partnership, Maguire and Lindelof. Never, adds Gary, in case we missed it the first time. Uh, would you ag- agree with that summary? Daniel, you're nodding.
3: Yeah, I would also say, and I've said it until I'm almost blue in the face on this podcast, I think they have a... They have a manager that reflects them as a team, in that there doesn't seem to be a huge amount of tactical depth there. There are flashes of brilliance, particularly against big six rivals, in which you can see something happening. But it, it it I said it about Arsenal under Emery last week, but it just kind of feels like it happens almost by roll of the dice rather than necessarily pre-planning. And without that pre-planning, you can see how Manchester United go on a run of good form when tails are up because Solskjaer is an arm round the shoulder you're a brilliant manager, there just seems to me to be an absolute dearth behind that, that when things aren't going so well, either in-game or over a period of games, there doesn't seem to be a handbrake to that bad form because it's just a kind of, let's hope that the next game is the one that we play well in, rather than let's have a plan to make sure that the next game we play in is the one that we win. And um, I don't think they'll finish outside the top six, and I don't think they'll even finish outside the top four, but I don't think there'll be a title challenger, whoever they buy under this manager.
1: Why? next game for United will be Red Hot Luton Town. That's right. The same hat as Outfit, who have won four games out of four in all competitions this season after winning four out of four in pre-season as well. That's coming up Tuesday at Kenilworth Road. Just on the subject, Carl, of your defined by whoever's wearing the number six thing, uh, you probably saw this, this this story that kind of re-emerged or emerged for some this weekend about the fact that Gala Cantara was actually due to be joining Man United, that Sir Alex Ferguson had actually set this deal up and then David Moyes went, who is this Thiago Alcantara, not sure about him, and shut it down again. And that equally, David Moyes, in his turn, had uh, made arrangements for Tony Cruz to be uh, joining the Red Devils, only for Louis van Gaal to say, no thank you. Uh, Nathan McGill says, hey chaps, any chance for a flip reverse on one of the coming shows in which Fergie stays at United, gets Alcantara... And then Moyes and Fellaini stay at Everton, and Martinez remains at Wigan. Does he still go on to be Belgian manager? Says Nathan. Presumably of Martinez. That's a there's, there's a world of kind of alternate realities in that question. That's it's an a very interesting one, tasty isn't it? A very
2: yeah. tasty one.
3: But again, I mean, you know, Carl has said this, and I know I have. But um, well functioning super clubs shouldn't be in a position where the new manager is necessarily dictating. Yes, they have a say in that transfer policy. But um, in Moyes's defence, it sounds like Ryan Giggs had some input on that decision as well, and said, "You know, I don't think he's really good enough." Like, should an assistant manager or a coach at that point really be the one dictating transfers? If you have someone in those positions to do that, they have already identified that he is a right fit, and therefore the deal is done. I don't. I don't. It feels like the
2: tail wagging the dog. You know what I'm going to say. You know what I'm going to say. <laughs>
0: listeners how's your hairline doing in this fine year of 2020 well despite being from a long line of follicly challenged males i am at the age of 40 still blessed with a full head of hair with no need for a jack charlton comb over or any evidence of a looming Attilio lombardo situation up top now some of you may not be so lucky and some of you may not wish to rock the look that our very own james richardson has perfected over the last two decades so that's where Hims comes in. Hims provides an easy-to-use, trustworthy and science-backed service for men suffering from hair loss, helping men to be the very best versions of themselves by connecting them with licensed healthcare providers to help with hair loss problems. With Hims, there are no more awkward in-person doctor visits or hush conversations at the pharmacy. You get a proper online appointment and some sound advice on what you can do to help your hair before it's too late all you have to do is head to forhims.co.uk slash athletic to start your free consultation today and check out the full details and all their safety information that's forhims f-o-r-h-i-m-s dot co.uk slash athletic one more time forhims.co.uk slash athletic you're listening to the totally football show sponsored by paddy power
6: Kane and Son, who's up with him. He's worked it into Son again. I do not believe it. It is brilliant. The Son and Kane show keeps on going.
1: Quite the lunchtime game on Sunday at St Mary's as Southampton hosted Spurs. Carl, this used to be your beat. Tell us what happened.
2: Uh, What happened was uh, Southampton played much like how they have often played which is loads of neat and tidy footwork. Danny Ings doing Danny Ings things. Wonderful then, goal, no? Fantastic take. It, mm. Danny Ings is renaissance is a real real nice uh, edifying thing and evidence of what happens when a striker is, is confident and when a striker finally gets a good run of form. Um, so he was doing very well. And then Southampton did what they often want to do, which is sort of shoot themselves in the foot, especially just before halftime. Really good counter-attacking goal, fantastic little roulette by uh, Ndombele as well. Uh, And then Son, I think Son is one of the best counter-attacking forwards in England, if not in European football. And then from then on, Southampton were chewed up.
1: So this was weird because until that point, Spurs had looked much the same kind of team who capitulated against Everton the previous week. There, but not really there. And the the one, well, the two lively people have been Son, of course, and Ndombélé, who kind of marauded through the Saints midfield to set Kane and then Son up for that opening goal. So then, at half time, Mourinho takes Ndombélé out of the lineup and everyone's going mad on, on social media. But hey, presto, Spurs score one, and then another, and then another, and it ends up being 5-2, with Sun scoring four, all four of which were assisted by Harry Kane, which is the first time in Premier League that one player has assisted the other for all four goals. What happened? Is this Jose's <laughs> master plan? How, do, how, how can we compute all this?
2: I think what happened, it's, it's the the other new signing Tottenham Hotspur made, Pierre-Emile Heuberg. So ah. formerly Southampton captain uh, goes to Tottenham Hotspur, nominally because Hoiberg is very, very good at winning the ball and passing it to more talented personnel. And Southampton still haven't replaced him. So Hoiberg left, there, Harrison Reid, the person you know was supposed to come back from loan from Fulham to do that, stays at Fulham so Southampton can play other players. Uh, and Southampton have not bought another midfielder in. Oriel uh, Romeo... Their number six goes off some way through uh, the second half, and they just get bullied in the middle of the park. But Heuberg, you know, is doing very basic things winning the ball, giving it to Harry Kane, who's in that sort of number 10 area where he can thrive, and he's got a fantastic range of passing when he wants to, and they're just playing very simple balls over the top because Southampton are a team that wants to play with a high defensive line that need to always apply pressure on the ball because... Ralph Hassenhall doesn't really trust these two centre-backs, so they try and press high up the pitch so there's less time on the ball in front of those two centre-backs. But the moment you get over them, when you've got a player as two-footed and as quick as Son, it's game over.
4: Could there be an argument that the reason Dombelli was taken off is to free up space for Kane to drop into? Uh, because that what it certainly looked like, and um, he came short twice. They scored the two goals. He went wide again. They scored the two goals. And I think what we saw in this game, I've seen, I've seen Kane to do this before. Do this before, but, but, but perhaps not to such devastating extent. He, he would drop and go wandering, looking for the ball. But this time, he seemed to know exactly when to drop and where to go. So because he's assisted from either wing, he assisted from the deep, and he showed that range of passing that he has. I remember it was a game against Liverpool, which I think Spurs lost, but he set up um, one of the goals by this like, reverse 40-yard ball. So when the, when the fourth goal goes in, I was like, I've seen this before. So he has this range of passing, except sometimes when he goes wandering, it's just he doesn't really get anywhere. Maybe in this situation, Mourinho actually did some coaching, saw that space that he could go into. And this is where Kane became so frighteningly efficient. I, I absolutely love this performance from him.
3: Yeah, I I absolutely agree. And I think it, it bodes really well for both Tottenham and for England because we, we've talked in the past about like split striker roles where the strikers split off to the wing. This is almost the reverse of that. If you play heung Son and Gareth Bale either side of Harry Kane and he effectively drops into midfield and plays the passes. You've then got two players doing that. I mean, it, it, Southampton were an, unable to stop heung Son running in behind. If you've got Gareth Bale as another player doing it, it's going to be incredibly hard to stop. And and if Tottenham are successful at doing that, England with two of Raheem Sterling, Jaden Sancho and Marcus Rashford playing the same role, that strikes is a brilliant option. I mean, I think Kane is, Kane is a goal scorer and loves scoring goals, so I suspect he would be slightly wary of not being more more selfless because I'm, I don't think he's a selfish player necessarily, but I think he would also like to be seen primarily as the the first choice number nine goalscorer. But the ability to play both of those roles and to switch between those roles in the same game is it kind of indicates a tactical awareness of Kane that maybe I we'd overlooked before I think we always knew he could play that pass around the corner when he drops deep he does it for England quite often but to be able to drop deep and effectively play as a playmaker and then go immediately back to playing as a number nine again it's a lot easier said than done when you're watching yeah. from home so I was really really impressed
1: it's Totty-esque I think we should we should yeah. remember as well that he had that incredible finish about three minutes in for a goal that was then called back for offside I think on Sun Hyung Min, but it was a magnificent spinning volley just to keep his uh, his hand in. Uh, Spurs have got a busy week. Tuesday uh, they're at Leighton Orient in the League Cup. Thursday, literally two days later, they're at Skendia you know, in Macedonia in the Europa League qualifiers, and then uh, they'll have their fourth game in eight days, uh, hosting Newcastle on Sunday. That's dramatic.
3: At least they got the easiest one last.
4: That's the main thing. And then they have the same the next week if they get through. Crikey! So there's league cup next week as well. Yeah, and Europa League as well.
2: Something that was particularly interesting after this game was Ralph Hasen's statement about being knocked out of the Carabao Cup early. So he mentioned um, because they were out of the cup, they got knocked out by Brentford. They don't. They only have to deal with one game a week until January when the FA Cup starts. It is going to be very, very interesting in this season. I think. When you're trying to get in all those 38 games plus the League Cup plus the FA Cup into a, a, a fixture list that is going to be five weeks short, I'm not saying teams are going to tank the League Cup, but I would not be surprised if you see slightly different profiles in some of these early League Cup games from Premier League sides.
5: Mm. Of
1: course, Spurs do have a big squad of players who could feature in some of those matches who weren't involved in this. Delhi Alley, for example. Oh, hang on. Is he on his way to Paris Saint-Germain? Right, said Nick, says, are Spurs right to side with Mourinho against Ali? He's very young and Mourinho could be gone next summer.
2: It's a confusing one. Uh, I I don't want to put too much credence on the all or nothing air quotes documentary, but that did make Daddy Ali look like a particularly poor trainer or perhaps not the most dedicated person in training. Um, He's definitely been in a downturn of form And his biggest qualities, sort of this sort of on-the-cuff, improvisational style of football, leads me to believe if he he can just fall out with a manager like that.
1: There was also that scene, wasn't there, where he was walking down the tunnel and looking disgruntled, Daniel?
3: Yeah, he sort of says it's all long ball and and, and ruddy defending, Um, Hmm. which, yeah, I mean, it's hard because you want footballers to be honest in those documentaries, but Mourinho probably watches that and thinks, well, A, you're criticising my tactics, and B, you know this is going to be coming out on uh, for every Spurs fan to watch. I think that there probably is a, a kind of natural end to this now because I don't honestly... It would be nice if Spurs kept Delli Alli because I think he could be an excellent footballer again, but he hasn't been for 18 months. And he probably does just need that move, I think, to to either you know, help him fall back in love with it or to kick him up the arse because mm. something needs to change because he has been kind of coasting for 18 months now albeit after being massively overplayed when he was 20, 21 years old. Well
1: it would be an exciting move anyway to see him line up with the Parisians. Next up on our grand tour of the round two results it's off to Goodison Park for another seven goals thriller between Everton and West Brom.
0: This is the Totally Football Show part of the Athletic Podcast Network. The Athletic is the only place you can read articles by Daniel Taylor, Amy Lawrence, Phil Hay, James Pearce, Ollie Kaye and the very best football writers around.
1: Yep, another seven-goal game from everyone's favourite, the Premier League. This one was close between Everton and West Brom until Kieran Gibbs shoved uh, James Rodriguez over in a particularly uh, dim-witted gesture. Everton, then facing 10 men, ran riot. Dominic Calvert-Lewin picking up the first hat-trick Of his career, four goals in two games for him now this season, Mark Small says, compared to last campaign, is there anyone who has improved as much as DCL? What do you think, Sash?
4: Well, according to Carlo Ancelotti, after the game, he's turning him into Filippo Inzaghi. Yikes. Um, Because he said um, this whole thing about scoring with just one touch. Filippo Inzaghi scored 300 goals, 210 of them with one touch. And what we see this game, what we see the first game, Calvert-Lewin is scoring with one touch. So perhaps he just simplified this game, forget about everything else, just put the ball in the back of the net. Maybe this was the secret behind Filippo Inzaghi that I certainly I didn't think of was before because I thought he was just a clumsy guy who was off, offside half his life and the other half his life he was scoring goals. But perhaps Reddest trick is, the devil ever pulled, <laughs> Sasha. Exactly. So if so, if Dominic Calvert-Lewin is going to turn into Filippo Inzaghi, I suggest we should all be running for cover.
2: I owe calvert lewin a little bit of an apology because at the start of last season when he was operating on a Marco Silva, I said he wore number nine, but he's not a number nine. Uh, and I think what's happened is first on the Duncan Ferguson, basically telling him to start homing and running around the back post and use that great aerial bit of his. And now with Ferguson and Ancelotti, they are beginning to hone a proper classic number nine. Uh, I think in April, I ran the numbers for all the English goal scorers uh, during lockdown and Calvert-Lewin had something like I think I want to say 13 goals on expected goals of 12. So he is a one-touch bang sort of striker, but he's not it's not fluke. It's not luck. it's not luck. It's a guy who's doing a lot of hard work. He doesn't dribble the ball too much because that's Richarlison's job. He doesn't need to press the ball too much because that's the other Everton player's job. And if he can get properly supplied now, which he probably should with James, Alan and the Corey behind him, there's no there's no reason why he can't get 20 goals this season. At least I, I, Carlo Ancelotti is also
3: making heading sexy again. In that the the, the, the <laughs> number of headed goals has kind of gone down in the Premier League over the last five six years, right the way back as the kind of rise of foreign managers and passing possession football. But Everton are incredibly good in the box. Um, I think Calvert Lewin is first, and Richarlison is third for headed shots on target since the start of last season in the Premier League. They've got Luca Dean that plays a brilliant ball in from set pieces or open play. They've now got Hammers to do that from the other side. And the football is still really watchable. It's not it's not front to back Long ball. It's crosses into the box, and it's not Liverpool crosses into the box, kind of pull backs to the edge of the six yard box. It's proper crosses into the box, and I think where Calvert-Lewin's really improved, as Carl kind of alluded to, is it's the movement in the box. It's it's meeting the ball. We saw that for the you know for the goal last weekend against Spurs. It, he seems to meet the ball at the perfect point to head home the chance. He doesn't have to kind of crane his neck or anything. He's running full pelt onto a ball to finish it. So, yeah, I, I agree with the the original tweet. I think he's the most improved Premier League player since the start of mm. last
1: season. He's deadly in the box. Hammers Rodriguez from outside the box where he does his business uh, bagging his first goal over the Toffees.
4: Too much space. And I think we saw it in the first game. He was afforded too much space this game when he scored and when he effectively set up the fourth, I think, uh, he has a lot of time on the ball to play those killer passes. So I think better teams will probably, I mean, if you look at BLC, Bielsa, Bielsa will probably have someone man-marking him and maybe someone else will be coming in to close him down because I think at the moment, a little bit too much space. Um, and I think also Alan... Uh, somewhat worryingly got left completely behind play for when uh, West Brom actually got the first goal. So I still think there's a few a few things to sort out there and I would like to see how Hamas does against the better teams in this division because I think defensively all three teams that have gone up, but particularly West Brom, are absolutely horrible. Well, the derby's coming up, Sash. Yeah, I think so. And I think, I think Everton... You know, notwithstanding what I said about, for example, West Brom being particularly great, um, I think Everton. Uh, there's certain enthusiasm, joie de vivre. They're playing football. They're good to watch, which hasn't really happened for many, many years. And I think they always I mean for the last decade Everton approach I think the derby with trepidation and I think this time there should be quite a lot of optimism just in the way they're playing football of course they're going to have a few more weeks to actually get the system better get it a bit tighter think about what to do when Hamas comes under a lot of pressure I think someone like Richarlison can provide the movement off the ball uh, to perhaps open up gaps and also I think you know it is significant that uh, I I think it's actually the match day which will be the 10th anniversary of the last Everton derby win Um, so so I think I think you know I think they have a chance this year.
1: Well, as you say, there's a way to go before that comes around. That's in three fixtures time on the 17th of October. Before that, Everton will be away at Palace and then home to Brighton. Brighton, who we'll will speak of very very soon. A very quick word though for the Baggies, who had Slavin Bilic sent off for his protestations over Kieran Gibbs's red card. Uh, they had a uh, couple of wonderful goals in this game. Diangana. Who actually opened the scoring?
3: They, they did, but they, they. Sasha referenced it there. But all three promoted sides and West Brom included, they, they've not signed defenders really. You know, Leeds signed Robin Koch, but had already lost Ben White. West Brom have.
4: They've signed Ivanovic.
3: Know, they, yeah, they signed Branislav Ivanovic, <laughs> but they've lost Nathan. Funny. They've lost Nathan Ferguson, who was a, a decent right back as well. Um, Fulham have signed Anthony Robinson and Kenny Tete and Ola Aina but only one of them's made a matchday squad yet they've, those three clubs have already had 90 shots, they've already allowed 90 shots this season that's an enormous number to say that they've played each other in one of those games uh, and the, you know, the, the one benefit of this transfer window ending after the season started is it kind of sharpens the mind on what needs to be done and all three of those clubs but particularly West Brom are going to have to buy some players if they indeed care too much about staying in the Premier League or or are happy to kind of bank the money
1: Hmm. Meanwhile, at the other end of the scale a lot of teams are going to win the league this year Everton, uh, Palace and Arsenal who are now two for two in terms of victories just like they were last season actually when they then won just two of the next 12 matches but anyway, this victory uh, this weekend came at home to West Ham and and while they did collect the three points it wasn't an easy journey uh, to that result Mikel Antonio equalising for the beleaguered Hammers. Since the Premier League resumed in June, by the way, no player has scored more goals in the division than Mikel Antonio. That's nine, level with Raheem Sterling. Remarkable stuff. The game was eventually won, touchingly, by a nice little combination between Sobias and Nketiah, the two who had been in that shoving match in the warm-up at Craven Cottage the previous weekend. Love for Arsenal, anyone?
2: Carl. I am a man of spreadsheets and XG and X's and O's, so perhaps I am over-evaluating Arteta because he wears a nice turtleneck and talks about things like body position. But Arsenal do seem to be growing something quite nice there. They won that one quite ugly, but they did win it uh, in a way that previous Arsenal sides, perhaps at last season, would not have won. Uh, they're going to run... I'm still not quite sure if they have enough to get into top four, but they're going to run it awful close this year. Uh, And uh, yeah, that quiet revolution of Mikel Arteta is beginning to get loud.
1: Next weekend, Arsenal are going to be at Anfield. So that'll be exciting. Meantime, talking about revolutions, let's talk about Graham Potter's Brighton, who went to Newcastle and came home with a fat 3-0 win. Um, We mentioned in our previous show the remarkable statistics of when Newcastle faced Brighton six times it's happened or seven times now and they haven't won any of them and in six of the games now they have failed to score a single goal in fact in this game they failed to register a single shot on target
3: yeah there was an excellent tweet from uh, Craig Hope Newcastle writer who who said that we're supposed to be living in a time when you don't make unnecessary journeys and Matt Ryan has just travelled 350 miles to Newcastle with nothing to do. Um, I mean, Brighton were were excellent and uh, they look well coached. Newcastle's entire attacking strategy appeared to be try and hit the chest of Andy Carroll and then hope something rebounds off it while he stands still unable to then get in the penalty area to complete the move. It was it was absolutely dismal. It really was. And I know we've criticised Steve Bruce and I probably over criticised him and he he proved me wrong for for long periods of last season but when you see games like that I mean I know fans weren't in the ground but when supporters watch games like that there just looks to be absolutely no kind of forethought as to what what Newcastle are trying to do it looked like a manager who had turned to his assistant and said well we'll pick the same team as last week because we won last week and Brighton just pick them apart. They just made them look so, so ordinary. And, and that's what Graham Potter does. He, you know The recruitment's brilliant there. He's got Dan Ashworth doing the recruitment. We talk about clubs that could really do with the director of football and everyone pulling in the right direction. And that's what's happening at Brighton at the moment. Um, and, and you kind of root for them and hope it, it succeeds because they took a risk by sacking Chris Houghton. And at the moment, there's not many better clubs to watch in the Premier League. Mm,
1: they're a likeable side and none more likeable than Tarek Lamptey. Yeah, he's good, isn't he?
2: <laughs> he's beginning to get a bit targeted physically uh, from other players but he looks like the real deal Chelsea fans are making strange noises saying they may have sold their best right back or let go of their best right back as it were but I think uh, he's just a joy to watch watching Brighton evokes the same feeling that I got when I was watching good Southampton last season where it takes your brain about 10 minutes to realise it's not the other team underperforming but Brighton in this case doing a
4: job very, very well.
1: So should we go easy on Steve Bruce then, Carl?
4: No, never. <laughs> All right, then. But it also seems to be fairly, fairly fashionable to knock out the opposition in the first six, seven minutes and then ask them, go on, what, what can you do? And obviously, Newcastle's case, not very much. Um, but I, I thought it was just really impressive the way they surgically picked apart um, Newcastle's left, hand, left flank uh, took the two chances and then just went, yeah, go on. Um, what can you do? Um, and just saw the game out really comfortably for 80-odd minutes, which I thought was very, very impressive.
1: A couple of other games to mention. Uh, one, the battle of the newly promoted sides at Ellen Road as Leeds I saw a Fulham 4-3. Uh, two in two for Patrick Bamford, who had previously scored just one goals in 27 Premier League appearances for variously Borough, Burnley, Norwich and Palace. He's another of these players who's been improved by a manager, is he?
4: Or perhaps he's still playing against the championship side. Um, Uh In this particular case. Maybe I'm being mean, but this was a game of absolutely horrific defending. But the the other
1: goal came against Liverpool, though, Sash.
4: Well, that was some also horrific defending there as well. Mm. Um, (laughs) But... um, but this, this would I thought I thought this was appalling. I, in fact, it's quite interesting. Bielsa said said after the game that they're not really creating enough; they're just converting everything. Uh, mm. But at the back, with, even with Cooper's return, I mean, pointlessly giving away penalties, leaving gaps in midfield, goalkeeper flapping for Fulham. Like for every Leeds goal, you could you, you could say that there were horrific mistakes. But the, for the fourth one, the, the Fulham defense just just wanders around. And I have no idea how they're planning to to stay up um, at this rate because they haven't got a defensive midfielder to actually protect the back line. Um, last week was a was a massive deja vu because of the whole back line making errors. This week he made changes. I mean, he brought Ariola as if changing the goalkeeper with that in front of him is going to help anything. And I, I just, I mean, Parker, after the game, spoke about, you know, having the right mindset. Mm. Uh, how about having, having the right players? Right. He was talking about red lights needing to go off. Fulham... Who famously
1: conceded eighty-one goals in their last Premier League campaign and eighty-five goals in the one before that will be lucky to get away with uh, uh, such a low total uh, based on their first two results. Uh, seven goals conceded in, in in two so far, anyway.
2: Yeah, he mentioned in he said they need the red light and they need to be able to smell danger. Smell danger. Was a very nice, a very nice interview, uh, Daniel. I think I think you were the one who wrote about Fulham getting relegated because their squad was too weird. And then when they came up again, they were not going to have a weird squad and not going to do a Fulham and then they went down again. Their squad now is the opposite to that where there's absolutely no odd flavouring whatsoever. It's very rudimentary and very championship quality. I feel like
3: they've just kind of almost got promoted by accident in that, you know, speaking to a, a few a few Fulham fans I know and if they hadn't got promoted, Scott Parker would almost certainly have been sacked um, or certainly been under extraordinary pressure to start this season well. And, they did brilliantly after lockdown and got promoted and Parker immediately signs a new contract and they still got a championship squad with a championship manager and i mean i said last week maybe there are signs this year or clubs this year who because of the financial climate as it is might think well let's just bank our premier league money let's not spend it and probably go down let's not spend it and almost certainly go down and and know we've got a, a you know a sustainable business model for the next five years. Maybe that's what they're doing, which isn't very interesting for the rest of us, but I kind of can hardly blame them.
1: Finally then, the team that is currently sitting on top of the Premier League, at least until we get onto Monday's games, Leicester and their 4-2 win over Burnley. Who cares to sum this up?
2: Brendan Warridge coaches his side to have a go, and they're doing a bootleg version of Manchester City, and it's going quite well. But when the tails are up, it's good. When the tails are down, it gets weird. So let's see what happens when things get weird.
1: All right, then. Well, next weekend, they're going to be away at Manchester City. City, of course, who are yet to feature in this season. They skip game week one and their game week two fixture comes up on Monday evening when they are going to be away at Wolves, against whom they lost both their fixtures last season that's uh, coming up later on Monday as is Aston Villa's first game of this campaign which will see them up against Sheffield United in a replay of the match which saw them stay up in the uh, top division last season by the skin of their teeth you remember this was the first game back after the restart when the goal line technology didn't work and a Sheffield United goal wasn't counted and that's why Villa is still with us in the Premier League all right well Looking forward to those games. We'll be discussing them, of course, in Thursday's edition of the Totally Football Show. Still to come today, very shortly, James Horncastle will be telling us all about one of the big breaking stories from the European weekend. First of all, though, let's get some odds on the games coming up from Lee Price.
6: Hello, listeners. That was a chaotic weekend, wasn't it? Goals almost everywhere, which you can see continuing tonight, in one of the games at least. Wolves vs City, reeks of goals, and it's odds on there's at least three here, with City similarly better than Evans to win the game, which is bookie speak for their favourites. Who'd have known? Wolves have lost Diego Jota from their attack, but City still haven't gained an all-conquering centre-back at the time of recording. So, 11-2 for the home win looks tantalising and long, a bit like an Adama race stride. Before that match, on the undercard, or how a football works these days, is Villa vs Sheffield United, the Blades having lost to Wolves last weekend, Villa got off without having to play City. Lucky boys. Which might explain why the Villains are favourites. We all have a good anti-hero, don't we? Just not Jack Grealish. With Dean Smith's men, 8-5 to to win this. We've hardly written Sheffield United off, though. We'd we'll be too scared to. Have you seen Chris Wilde on the VAR rant? It's 9-5 to for an away win. And yes, it's odds on that won't be the only VAR reference in the build-up to this game. Strap yourselves in.
1: You can find out these odds and more at paddypower.com or the Paddy Power app. Prices are accurate. At the time of recording, it's over-18s only. Terms and conditions apply. And when the fun stops, stop. Now, the Toady Football League show is out on Monday. Will Sabri Lamushi still be the Nottingham Forest manager by then? Daniel, will he?
3: Yeah, he will be by Monday. He might not be by the following Monday.
1: Right. Who's it going to be then?
3: I'd love it to be Eddie Howe, and there are some reasons to believe why that could happen. But... Um, with our owner, it could also be a, a very left-field choice from Greek football. So, yeah, your guess is as good as mine. That sounds
1: exciting, a left-field choice from Greek football. All right, uh, Totally Scottish Football Show is out on Tuesday, as is the Totally Football Show's European edition, and it's going to be a busy one with the opening weekend of the Bundesliga, a huge game between Borussia Dortmund and Gladbeck, with Bellingham getting an assist on his debut and Sancho in action and all that stuff by Munich. Getting things underway with a, a quick 8-0 over Schalke and our old pal David Wagner. In Serie A, meanwhile, big story the opening weekend was Andrea Pirlo, never managed a game at any level ever, but here debuting with the Italian champions. How did it go? Let's get a quick heads up from James Horncastle. Hello, James. Hello, James. Opening weekend of the Serie A season, there's loads of stories to talk about, and we're going to be doing that on Tuesday But i got to know, how did Andrea Pirlo's debut go?
5: Mightily impressive, James, even if it was coming up against the Sampdoria side that uh, flirted with relegation last year and haven't really been able to do all that much so far this summer. Um, But just to see uh, Juventus play with fluidity, play attacking football, uh, create lots of chances, I mean... Claudio Ranieri at the end of the game, the Samp manager, was saying that, uh, yeah, three goals flattered Samp um, in, in that uh, they should have lost by a, a bigger scoreline. Because certainly in the first half, uh, when Cristiano Ronaldo hit the bar, um, Aaron Ramsey kept setting him up. And that was one of the stories of the game. Ramsey uh, playing really well in midfield, probably his best performance in the event shirt, along with the one that he put in in the Derby d'Italia back in, what, February, March time. And uh, Juventus just looking in sync already in a very Mm. short space of time playing. Tonight it was 3-2-5 when they've got the ball uh, with McKennie, who did well in midfield alongside Adrian Rabiot uh, and Ramsey a little bit further forward. Uh, Kulusevsky and Ronaldo up front. Kulusevsky got the opening goal. Their big €42 million signing from Atalanta, um, who was sort of bought in January but didn't join until uh, the end of the season. yeah, three goals, which didn't happen very often under Maurizio Sarri last year when they kind of made hard work of scoring goals and a clean sheet as well, which isn't something that uh, happened much under Sarri either. So, uh, early days, James, but lots of positives.
1: Right. Can, can we already say what Pirlo ball is? Pirlismo. <laughs>
5: well... I think uh, we got a good idea of what pillow ball is in his dissertation, which uh, came out last week. Uh, he uh, finished his UEFA pro license. He had an exam at Kovaciano, and then uh, they released the culture that I would like to play, which was the title of his, uh, of, of his thesis. And it was very kind of uh, on brand with a lot of the kind of I'd say, blue-chip football teams that we see at the moment that play this sort of liquid football that was actually used in the thesis. The Partridge liquid football came through um, and... Yeah, I think that's the thing. It's it's about rotations, interchanges of position. Um, He said tonight that he doesn't think there's a PLO in this team, which was one of the the, the, the quotes that he had after the game. So, yeah, we don't have a a playmaker we've got uh, and we don't have guys who are number eights really either. So we're going to build up in a kind of three plus two kind of way. Um, but yeah, it's all about kind of fluid movement and um, total, complete football again. which she said because I, I, one one of the things, uh, uh, as well as thanking Roy Hodgson in his thesis for um, calling him Pia, uh, which means uh, which means idiot, probably a charitable translation of that. He cited the kind of teams that really influenced him, uh, and one was Louis van Gaal's Ajax. There was you know the Cruyff and Peps Barcelona, Conte's Juventus, and uh, and of course Carlo Ancelotti's Milan. Um, so I think and Hodgson, kind of, yeah, and and, and Hodgson, mm. uh, I think they give you a really quite a good flavour of what he he's um, he's all about. As many talented players in the team as possible. Uh, without sacrificing balance, and that was the thing that I was asked about tonight. Because yeah, you know, Delict was still out injured and won't be back for a while. Dibala is still coming back from injury as well, so there there weren't a lot of um, yeah their their best players from last year, if you like, their best performances. Right. So how they all fit in is going to be uh, it's going to be very interesting to follow.
1: It certainly will. You'll be telling us more about all of that in Tuesday's European edition. Of course, looking forward as well to. His second game in charge, which looks a slightly tougher one, they're away at Roma next Sunday evening. One final thing though, what did he wear on the touchdown? Was it a kind of Sarriesque tracksuit affair?
5: <laughs> no Sarriesque tracksuit, no Sarriesque uh, knitted polo shirt which he tended to sweat into. Pilo looked immaculate in his uh, what Juventus Trusardi suit. And the thing is, he never sweated. He didn't sweat at all. That was that was the thing that really kind of took me back in his post match press conference. He was just ice cool, and that was what Kulosevsky said. Yeah, he's just he just transmits kind of calm uh, right. to you. And um, like Prince Andrew, uh, yeah. another
1: man who has that. Uh, <laughs>
5: <laughs> indeed, indeed. Um, yeah. Did he did he go to Pizza Express for his pre game meal? We don't know. So. We
1: don't know. Well, we'll have more on on that major story and the other big stories from around the continent in tuesday show including of course uh, a little look forward to thursday's european super cup yeah by munich against sevilla that'll be huge anyway james look forward to speaking to you then and now thank you very much with that he was gone and it's pretty much time for us to go as well listener we've got uh, loads of football to tell you about by the time we come back on Thursday, but for now, well done for ploughing through all of those goals to Carl, Daniel and Sasha. Cheers. Goodbye. 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 Have a lovely week. Uh, Listen, until we catch up with you again soon and as the fellas say, it's cheerio.
0: You've been listening to The Totally Football Show, part of The Athletic Podcast Network.